गुरवे गौरचंद्राय राधिकाय तदालय कृष्णाय कृष्ण भक्ताय भक्ताय नमो नमः Pranam to all of you. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever you may be. And we are continuing with a new lecture on our series of Radical Personalism. Today we are on lecture number 23. And we are starting the last part of our series of Radical Personalism. We have three more lectures left today and two more weeks. So in total, it will be, if I'm not mistaken, 25 lectures. Today, we will be starting a new series, as I mentioned last week, talking about, in different ways, it has not one specific title, as you, as you will see, each one of the three last lectures will have its own different title, but all of them, of them revolve around the principle of unearthing heaven and discovering transcendence in matter and revalidating material world in connection to transcendence and so on. So this the title for today's lecture will be The Spiritual Sacredness of the Material World. As counterintuitive as it may sound to some of us. But of course, let's begin by making a brief recap of what we saw last Tuesday in our second class on contemplative prayer, where we talked about developing a contemplative mind. We mentioned the importance of developing a contemplative mind to engage with contemplative prayer. As with, we mentioned with non-dual reality, we need to develop non-dual thinking in order to grasp the non-duality of reality. So similarly with contemplative prayer and contemplative mind. And this mind is a non-obsessive mind. We described it as such in one of the many ways we described it. Um, by contrast, again, the non-contemplative mind is a repetitive pattern uh, machine, so to say, <laughs> which constantly is invoking useless, many times repetitive, useless, compulsive uh, patterns of thought. Um, and probably one of the main stages for us to enter into what a contemplative mind means is to realize how non-contemplative our mind is, how obsessive, how compulsive, and so on. And that may be pretty humiliating, but probably that's a humiliation we need for attaining proper humility observing ourselves, of course, uh, with detachment from what we are going through and not over-identifying with that non-contemplative side in a non-judgmental way, but detecting these thinking patterns, which in many cases, as we mentioned, also thinking or taking, quote-unquote, shelter in these waves and parade of unending repetitive thoughts is one of the main defense mechanisms against any genuine true transformation. Um, of course, that said, we mentioned also we do not need to repress our thoughts, we don't need to hate them, but just to take them for what they are and relate to them accordingly and properly. And this, we mentioned, especially in the beginning stages, this may not be easy. And that's why prayer sometimes is not that popular, real prayer, because it's not so much about comfort zone, but in a play of words, we mentioned it's more a confront zone, a stance to actually confront reality as it is. We also spoke of about contemplative prayer as relationship, essentially, a relationship that we need to develop with Bhagavan and that has no end. 
but it, there are some stages as with any other relationship when we go from acquaintance to whatever, friendliness, friendship, intimacy, and so on. So gradually we should perceive how our relationship through prayer is being properly developed. And part of any relationship is dialogue, conversation, and part of that is hearing, listening. And for that to happen, silence has to be there. We spoke about that as well. Silence is not so much about not speaking, but about paying close attention, hearing. And Krishna mainly speaks through silence, not because he speaks in silence, but through our silence. We need to hear attentively. And sometimes we don't want to hear because that entails the potential of opening ourselves to being transformed from what we are hearing. And generally we escape from transformation and change. Although paradoxically, that's the thing we may need the most. And we concluded our last lecture last Tuesday talking about Srinam, the chanting of the Holy Names as contemplative prayer. Although Srinam, Kirtan, Japa may not be per se officially, technically a prayer, it can be invoked and chanted, embraced in a prayerful mood, spirit. And for that, we need to empty our minds first, eventually open our hearts, surrender, hearing, all this what we mentioned is connected to this idea of chanting Srinam in a prayerful mode. To apply all the things we talked in these two lectures on contemplative prayer during the moment of the chanting, hearing, listening, opening, and so on. And we also concluded mentioning that Srinam, of course, is Chintamani, a wish-fulfilling uh, tree, touchstone, and whatever, all the names that you want to ascribe to him, to it in this way. And so it's all powerful, but it won't receive, it will reciprocate according also to our degree of longing, our particular desire. So there is a role to play in our will in the context of prayer. And, and, and basically that's the idea, to enter into that flow and to understand how contemplative prayer is not just something we do at some particular point, but ultimately it's a stance, a state of consciousness, a lifestyle that will accompany us into eternity. So after this brief recap of what we saw last Tuesday, let's enter today with a brief introduction in connection to today's title of today's lecture, The Spiritual sacredness of the material world and how this present this last three series of lectures will connect with our previous topic of contemplative prayer so in our previous series we talked about we spoke about contemplation and as i just mentioned contemplation is a stance toward life which allows us to see things into their wholeness to see the truth of reality into their, its wholeness, not in parts, not fragmented. So therefore this contemplation that we talked about, this contemplative mind now, let's see, will overflow into the topic of the last three lectures of our radical personalism series, where we will be extending, so to say, this contemplative vision, this contemplative stance, now to, toward the realm of the material. And reflecting together on how this world we are in now, material world, is not necessarily something mundane in, in, in negative terms, nor, nor profane, but something holy and sacred. If we have the eyes, the contemplative eyes, to see it. That will be the main project in the last three lectures. How can we approach matter and perceive it in a sacred way? 
There is a spiritual sacredness in the material world. So in other words, the main point will be the world is not bad. The world is good. Material energy is good. This is a crucial aspect of radical personalism. This is a very important point that we will like to emphasize throughout the, the closing classes of this series. How to properly venerate, how to properly honor everything, including matter, in a positive way. Because if we bear in mind our non-dual foundation to reality, remember we talked about that, the foundation of reality is non-dual, everything is interconnected with the common source, and God is present in every atom even. So if you bear in mind that fact, the absolute is present in every atom, then everything, material energy included, has the potential to facilitate and to reveal transcendence to us here and now, to follow my point. So the here will not be so, and when I say here, this is not so much about the geographical location as we may perceive it, but mostly a state of consciousness. Where we are, it's not so much where we are physically, but internally. Therefore, in the next three classes and the last ones from this series, uh, we will explain, try to explain how our Gaudiya lineage is not only promoting a deep regard for this world, but even Bhagavan himself validates the material creation, material energy, by perpetually coming on earth, to earth, to execute his lila, his bhoma lila, his srishti lila. And, it, and this reality, this lila will be an eternal reality that we are invited to participate in. So we'll be talking about this through the next three lectures. And, and about how that participation in, 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 the, in the lila that even manifests on earth begins exactly here and now. So the, the main point is what are we supposed to do here and now so all these other things eventually come to us. So a brief introduction regarding today's topic and a little bit about what we will be seeing in the next two weeks as well. So let's start with one section in connection to the topic of today, the spiritual sacredness of the material world, let's talk about some classic misunderstandings about matter in the Gaudiya community. Let's begin first by speaking what our Gaudiya conception is not, as we talked recently, what contemplative prayer is not. Let's mention what Gaudiya Siddhanta is not in connection to how to approach perceived matter. And then we will take the, the positive approach. So some classic, let's share first, classic misunderstandings about matter in the Gaudiya community. So the Gaudiya teachings do not promote negation, rejection, evasiveness of anything, but actually an engaging of everything in sacred seva, in sacred service. That's our philosophy. Everything has the potential to be paraphernalia, to be offered in the service of Bhagavan. But despite that's our official stance in Siddhanta, sometimes some misunderstandings as in everything and every place, sometimes some misunderstandings in this connection manifest, may spring forth in our community. So let's begin by sharing some of those misconceptions before going to the actual Gaudiya teaching in this connection. So as we already explained in, in previous classes, uh, transcendence doesn't mean rejection of anything but integration that's transcendence especially for Gaudiya Vaishnavas. Srimad mm -hmm. Bhattan mentioned this very nicely it mentions that to attain 
full perfection in bhakti, bhakti yoga siddhidha, one should not be too attached nor too detached. To attain success in bhakti, you have to thread the middle path. A middle point needs to be established. Not too detached, not too attached. If you are too attached in a selfish way, you see everything with you in the center. If you are too detached from everything, you lose sight of how everything is connected to our common source. So middle path means not to attach, not to detach means nothing is to be rejected. Only what is to be rejected or transformed, converted, is our exploitative, selfish, self-centered tendencies. Nothing else. That's the only problem. That's the only bad thing, stuff. <laughs> but unfortunately, through the years, throughout the years, in our Gaudiya community, an excessive, I will say, emphasis on asceticism, on being an ascetic and renunciation have, I will say, have affected the understanding of many, many Gaudias. Too much emphasis on this. To the point that this world is seen as something to be rejected, despised, something bad, something mundane, something profane, something miserable, no matter what. Many devotees think like that, speak like that, act like that. In other words, they can they can see material energy or material world as a place to live as soon as possible. And this sounds more like mukti instead of prem. Our goal is not mukti. Mukti means get free from samsara and leave this world as soon as possible. But that's mukti. Our goal is not mukti, moksha. Our goal is prem, who does which does incur for mukti, moksha laguta krit, and so on. Mm -hmm. So we should be careful because we are representing a tradition and a particular goal, but sometimes we misrepresent that by putting an too much emphasis on a different goal, which is not ours. This dualistic outlook, matter, spirit, and so on, I want to leave this world, will take some immature practitioners to conceive spirituality, mostly many times in negative terms. What to reject? This is what I, I practice about rejecting this not doing this, avoiding that, instead of a more positive and mature take on reality, what to do, what to embrace, how to embrace everything into the bhakti equation, the bhakti project. So this dualism generally keeps devotees in, in a mental split. Like again, as I mentioned many times, I practice spiritual life, but also I have my material life. Many times they both think like that. I have my spiritual life here, my material life there. We create, we create that dichotomy. This similar, we create this dichotomies. We choose to invoke them. But they are not necessary. Or they are not necessarily a fact. We have to, I mean, if we have a proper contemplative approach to life or non-dual approach to life, as we talked in our series, you realize I don't need to see things in mental splits material, spiritual, but all of, the, all of this can be integrated in one similar equation. Mm -hmm. With this, I'm not saying that you stop, uh, you, you cancel the ontological difference between matter and spirit. I'm saying that you don't need to create in your mind a dichotomy, matter is bad, spirit is good, and so on. So in other words, it's not that religion is holy, so to say, and the world is profane. Many spiritual practitioners, not only go this, Thing like this. It's not that this is holy, this is profane. Both religion and the secular can be holy, if properly conceived, and both can be profane as well. 
we can use religion to justify the most horrible things in the world, and that becomes profane. So it's about it's all about our conception. As Srila Siddha Maharaj will say, all our problems arise due to a lack of proper conception, sambanda. So we are here trying to properly conceive what's the world and how to approach it. Another classical misunderstanding in our Gaudiya community, in some sections at least, again, is to consider, again, the world uh, as bad, even to the point of seeing it as something that exists with intention of making us fall. Mm -hmm. Like the idea of material energy or Maya Shakti. Because why, again, we connect this world with Maya Shakti, mm -hmm. which is described sometimes as the illusory energy or material energy. So the point is that we connect this world to Maya Shakti and then we connect Maya Shakti to something or someone who wants us far from Krishna. And that's misconnecting Maya Shakti, not connecting. We start to conceive Maya Shakti as some bad person who wants us to fall. Somehow, somehow the Christian, the Gaudiya version of the Christian Satan or something. Someone is there who is trying to be, who is against God, is competing with him or something. But we don't have such a notion in our tradition. Everything is servant and subservient to Bhagavan. Nothing is competing with him. We may try our best to do so ourselves. <laughs> but Maya Shakti is serving Bhagavan. The Gaudiya notion of Maya, just in case, has nothing to do with an evil, ill-motived, perverse potency mm, that wants to see us falling into her grip. Maya Shakti is... Shakti of Bhagavan is a sacred energy in the service of Bhagavan that we need to understand and to honor properly. Mm. It's all about how we choose to approach reality. Again, how to how we choose to approach in this case Maya Shakti. If we choose to approach Maya with the intention of exploiting her, we will be entangled. That's what Shastra says. But if we choose to approach Maya Shakti respectfully, acknowledging our common center, Bhagavan, she will nourish us like a mother, like a loving mother, eventually taking the form of yoga maya and orchestrating the whole lila. Of course, someone say, well, but Bhakti Thakur is describing in Jeep Jago Maya as a witch, Pisachi. So why then, then means she's a bad, evil lady? But again, we have to harmonize all the things that Shastra said about Maya being a servant of Bhagavan. So yeah, Maya may be a witch in the sense of she bewitches us, or though, but not us, but those who are exploitative, those who are approaching her with the wrong motives, they are bewitched by that approach. It's not that Maya herself is a witch or an evil person. And this idea of Pisachi or witch takes my mind to Rupa Goswami's verse in the Bhaktara Samrita Sindhu, Mukti Mukti Sprihaya, but Pisachi Hridivartate. Again, the word Pisachi is invoked there, but the word Pisachi refers to our desires for Bhukti and Mukti are like witches. So it, not, it doesn't have too much to do with Maya being a witch, trying to bewitch us, but we allow ourselves to have certain desires and we've been bewitched by that. Mm -hmm. It's take the, the particular orientation that, that actually matches what, what Gaudiya Siddhanta says about Maya Shakti. Mm -hmm. So again, Maya Shakti is not something that tries to take us away from God. No, but in one sense, we could say Maya is a servant, is a devotee. So she wants everyone serving Bhagavan because she's a devotee of Bhagavan. So a devotee of Bhagavan wants others to serve Bhagavan as well. So she's taking us not away from him, but gradually to him. As 
gradual because we are not collaborating that much. So she herself has to act in a certain way. But the ultimate intention behind the way she's acting is to take us closer to him. Now she's not taking to him as us to him directly, as divine love will do, if you will, as her face as Yoga Maya will do, but will give us an indirect version of such experience, so to say. Because again, Maya is serving God. So if God wants us to go to him, Maya wants us was wants the same thing as well. Like like connecting karma with mercy. Karma is not a bad thing. It's not a, an evil person behind that law. Karma is not to, to put us away from Bhagavan or to chastise us cruelly, but to educate us. And through that education, make us fit to get closer and closer to Bhagavan. So similarly, Maya Shakti is taking us closer and closer indirectly toward the shelter of the Swarup Shakti, we could say. All, all the Shaktis are acting in the service of Bhagavan. We could say even Maya Shakti, if you want to conceive her as a person as we can, is serving Bhagavan probably much more than what we are as the Tasta Shakti. So we should honor her as a very dedicated Vaishnavi. <laughs> so therefore, when our Gaudiya texts, for example, describe this world as a perverted reflection of the spiritual realm, maybe you have heard that one many times, it's basically indicating an upside down perception of reality that all of us may have. In other words, the perfect, the, per, the perversion of such perverted reflection is in us, not in the world itself. It's not the world is perverted in, inherently. We are perverted. We are contemplating that in a perverted way. And for that to stop, we require, of course, a 180 degree change in a revolution in our point of view from I-centeredness to God-centeredness. And so when we go through that fire of ordeal, so to say, uh, we will see something else, I can tell you. Mm -hmm. So we need to take more responsibility. It's not that I made a 180-degree change, but as little as we were able to do so, there is a change of the perception. That's that's a case. Mm -hmm. So we need to take more responsibility about how we choose mm -hmm. to see things and relate to them. If we have the wrong conception, there will be a wrong relationship. Wrong Sambanda, wrong Abhideya, what to speak of Prayojan. So if we choose to see the world as bad, that will create a certain vision and way of relating to things. So let's work a lot about this, properly conceiving the conception, as we already talked in the past. So if we connect this world with, with Maya and describe Maya solution, uh, it's a delicate connection in the sense that we then will end with the may end in the conclusion that this world is illusory, is false, is non-existent, and that aligns with Advaita Vedanta, not with Gaudiya Vedanta. Shankaracharya will say, Brahma Satyan Jagan Mitya. Only Brahman is real, the world is false. So by speaking Maya's illusion, the world is, is the world of Maya, the world is illusion. We may end up even unconsciously considering all this is false. And in part, that has many consequences. In part, our big ecological crisis that we are going through now at present is a result of that in many religions, considering the world as illusory or as bad, as profane, and totally neglecting it, exploiting it, and so on, and not seeing it as a sacred womb, a sacred matter. But the point is that when we say that the world is an illusion, this doesn't mean that it doesn't exist or that it's 
unreal, non-existent, but actually that it's not what it seems to be, what it seems to be to our conditioned eyes. Mm -hmm. But it's not that it's not existing or something. It's something that will be properly appreciated when it's seen in connection to its source. So that's about us aligning our own vision. When we see the world in connection to its source, Bhagavan, hmm, that's real. Whatever we will see in that moment, we cannot call that false or unreal. So we need to understand how we are, how we relate with these concepts and ideas that we may heard, repeat, enact, <laughs> and so on. Because if we wrongly conclude hmm, all matter is inherently bad, then this will take us to, to another misunderstanding, we could say, which is our body, material body, is similarly bad, undesplicable. And that's, again, another mis common misunderstanding in parts of the Gaudiya tradition. The body, the body is seen as a temporary material destruction, even a moral temptation to our, to our anti-material soul, something like that. And, and this view is nothing but a toxic notion, but it's putting us at, at odds with our bodies as strangers to our bodies, which generally manifests in a premature sta stage of transcendence. And, and in that stage, we may call, we may engage in what we may call disembodied spirituality, where there's a negation to the body, negation to matter, keep the connection here. And mostly we'll be stuck, stuck in what we may call our head quarters. We speak of the head quarters, but here I refer to the head, but we are not relating from the neck down. That's the body. Mm. So this is heady space, but this is a heady space of what we may call a psycho-emotional decapitation. There's nothing going on apart from what's going on in my head. And from that heady space, we will conceive the body as a mere karmic burden on the price to pay for incarnating. Uh, only negative terms, that my, that's my point. Rather than something that we can value, it's one of the shaktis of Bhagavan, don't forget, matter mm, has the potential of becoming fully engaged in seva and therefore fully spiritualized and has can help us to and assist us in the pursuit of our highest goals. So how much are we to reject that? Mm -hmm. We could say that the more we, to make a play of words, the more we dismissed our body, the more we become a nobody. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to be a nobody. So pay attention to your body. Mm -hmm. Therefore, to uh, and of course, to become a somebody, we need to learn how to relate to our body, to cut our connection with it in some way. So, again, well, we we have repeatedly here this idea: we are not this body. I'm not can canceling that idea. We are just trying to to go to enter into the nuance of the implications of that. So, yeah, we are not this body, but in a deeper sense, we could say and make full circle and say we are actually are this body as the Buddhist. Gaudius, for example, because we, we will speak in terms of transfiguration, the process of transubstantiation in Christianity, they use this term of matter, begins with the sadhakadeha. We are this sadhakadeha, we are this body in the sense of this sadhakadeha, the practitioner's body that we received from Sri Guru. And this culminates with the siddhadeha, where sadhakadeha attains full spiritualization we will speak in terms of Siddha Deha. That's that moment where the Sadaka Deha becomes fully 
engrossed in transcendence and accomplished through the gift of divine grace. Mm -hmm. So how much can we say, I'm not that? I have nothing to do with that. <laughs> Considering this, we have the right to say that we are this body. There is place for that because we are this sadhaka and it's the ultimate perfected unfolding in the form of a siddha deha. Because the sadhaka deha, again, has the potential to attain full consummation and becoming us so, somehow in eternity. The perfected sadhaka body, fully spiritualized in that body, so to say, will be serving Mahaprabhu in his Nitya Navadip Lila. Or we could say about this resembling that body. Once we leave this body, we'll enter into the Nitya Navadip in that body, fully spiritualized, appearing, manifesting in the Lila. It's an unfolding of the Swarup Shakti over there. So, as we already mentioned in some previous classes, again, we may need to redefine matter. We may pay attention to what we understand by matter. And by extension, we may need to redefine our own body and the conception of it in positive terms. For example, again, matter is something with the potential of becoming extremely gross, but also and especially with the potential of becoming extremely spiritualized. And it all depends on our vision and our approach to it. Mm -hmm. So in terms of reframing our language mm -hmm. and understanding of certain, cru certain crucial concepts of our Gaudiya lingo, which we need, uh, we should therefore learn to refer to matter, again, not, not as something necessarily mundane. Generally, when we say mundane, this word carries a negative connotation, something bad, something profane. But sometimes the devotees equate these two terms, like mundane, material mundane, and mundane bad. So therefore, bad. <laughs> and of course, the transcendentalist is supposed to not have anything to do with anything mundane. So by referring to this world and mundane and by understanding that as something, but we are automatically dismissing this whole topic, matter, this world, this Shakti. But again, matter is an energy of Bhagavan. It's a Shakti of Shakti Mam. And Bhagavan inhabits, as we will see, God inhabits in, in, in one of his forms, every atom, as we already mentioned, more in his facet as far matma in this case. So how can we call matter mundane if every atom is oozing with the presence of the divine? So what has the potential to be mundane is our approach to matter. Matter is not to blame. Matter is mundane and profane. It's all about our vision, our approach. So what has the potential to be mundane is our approach to matter, while a proper approach will show us matter in a very different light. Or even put, better put, we could say, Matter itself will show us a different light. We can see light through matter. It's possible. So anyhow, my brief words, some words in connection to this, some of the classical Gaudiya misunderstanding in connection to matter. So we have shared a bit about what Gaudiya Siddhanta is not in connection to Maya Shakti. So let's now turn to a second next section where we will talk about the actual the actual Gaudi approach to material energy. So what we are about in this connection. So at this point, someone may argue that, okay, but Maharaj, there are abundant sections in Shastra. So we will try to entertain as much Purva Paksha as we can, opposing arguments. 
There are many sections in Shastra that describe the world, this world as miserable, illusory, mundane, and whatnot, so on. So and we are not denying that. We are trying to acknowledge that and align these ideas with other things that are being said. So while Shastra may express itself in these words at times, Shastra also speaks, as we will see, in a very different tones at times as well, praising all the opportunities that this world will offer to us in terms of spiritual attainment. Being Again, this world being one of God's energies, is acting in his service. In other words, my point is Shastra will address Shastra addresses different audiences with different adhikar, with different capacities, and therefore will employ different expressions for each one of the members of those audiences, speaking in different ways about the same thing. For the blindly attached, Shastra may speak in terms of the absolute misery of this world to prevent that person of proceeding and exploiting matter. Well, actually, again, by Shastra saying this world is miserable, what Shastra is saying is, Shastra is speaking about the misery of being selfish, of us being exploitative, self-centered, toward Bhagavan's energies, toward Maya Shakti. The world is one of those energies, again. That's the misery Shastra is talking about, not inherent misery in Maya Shakti. But again, for, for, that, for those members of the audience who are seeing the world for what it actually is, potential paraphernalia to be engaged in seva, Shastra will use a very different language, a very different tone, as we'll see. So I'd like to clarify that, because as we already mentioned in previous classes, Shastra, for example, when we spoke about Guru Tattva, Shastra may speak about the Guru in ideal, idealistic terms. You should surrender to the Guru, the Guru is not different from Hari, and the Shastra is bearing in mind, considering a Guru who is perfectly behaving as such, assuming that person is fully qualified for performing that role, and we need to understand why Shastra is speaking in that way, which is the person that Shastra has in mind when saying those things. We as a reader need to understand that. So similarly, in this connection, we should know how Shastra will speak about the material world in different ways, according to different members of the audience, because to be realistic, people is in very different situations. An example that we could give in this connection is a mother who may threaten his mischievous child, not to do certain things that she knows my child is tempted to do, but she will threaten the child because she's trying to prevent the child from doing those things and suffering through those things. That's the intention. So she will use that language, that tone. But when their child is not mischievous and is serious and mature, the mother will resort to a very different language. There's no need to, for, to continue employing that threatening language. So Shastra, in this sense, we could say the is like a mother who will speak in different ways in this connection as well. So again, Shastra speaks in these different languages, but we, sh we should be aware <laughs> of this fact when addressing these apparently contradictory statements. No? For example, one, one of those could be in the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna will refer to this world as Dukalayam Asashvatam. This world is full of suffering, dukala ayam, dukha alayam, and asaswatam, and it's temporary. Mm -hmm. So miserable and temporary, this is the world. Doesn't sound too promising. But then we go to Prabhupada Nanda Saraswati's 
Chaitanya Chandramrita, he will say, Vishwam Purna Sukhayate, which means the whole universe, material universe, is an abode of Sukha instead of Dukha. Krishna says, Dukha Alayam. The Prabhupada says, Sukhayate, Vishwam Purna. The whole world is filled with joy. So it seems contradictory, but again, Krishna is speaking to a certain people, to a certain audience, in a certain language, Prabhupada Saraswati is expressing himself from another point of view and perspective. So we should burn in mind this fact to harmonize potential contradictions. Let's continue sharing some quotes. Remember, this section is about what Gaudiya Siddhanta says about matter. So in Paramatma Sandarva in Chedda 69, Srila Jiva Goswami clarifies the same point, you know, that different people perceive the word differently. And he mentions the following. I will read. He says, I will share quite some number of quotes today with, with or without your permission. So Sri Jiva says, those whose minds are not fixed on Paramatma accept only the unreal aspect of the universe, Asat, whose very essence is Paramatma. But those who know Paramatma accept only the real or sat aspect of this world. So he's making this point. Two different people relate to the world from two different places. One is real and the other is the one who we call illusory or unreal. So therefore, having clarified these important previous points, I'm mostly clarifying this initial point of different st statements in Shastra in different tones according to different people. Let's enter now more in detail to what our Gaudiya Sampradaya has to say about this material world and its connection with Bhagavan. Hmm? So as we already mentioned, ultimately we could re reduce everything to Shakti and Shakti Mam. We could speak in terms of the energetic source and energy or energies. And of course, all Shakti, all energies exist in the service of its source, of their source, Bhagavan. Hmm? So this world, again, is one of those Shaktis. Hmm? And we are another of course, just in case. <laughs> so all of us ideally are destined to be engaged in bhakti. So my point is by nature, if every shakti is in service to its source, the per specifically speaking about this world, material energy, the purpose and fulfilling of, of these shaktis is in connection to Bhagavan. So they are not against him. My shakti is not against Bhagavan. And I, we already mentioned something about that. But let's go even one step further than this. No? That, let's show how Shastra describes how this material world is not only not against Bhagavan, but actually the material creation manifests as a result of the joy of God. That's the, the backdrop, the underlying foundation to all the material creation. God's an overwhelming of God's ecstasy. So how can we call that profane? So in connection to this unique point, let's go to Vedanta Sutra 2.133, one of my famous, my favorite, I would say, or maybe the favorite aphorism sutra of the Vedanta, who famously say, Lokavatu Lila Kaivalyam. You may know this one, which is the translation of this one, we could say the translation is that the motive of the Lord, of Bhagavan, in creating the world is mere sport only, pure lila, as we see in ordinary life. Like he acts like an ordinary person. He celebrates. We'll see what Baladev Bidabhushan has to say in the say. 
in the, in the purport to this sutra. But basically he's saying the background to this world is lila. And lila means sacred play, non-dual play. Bhagavan only engages in lila. Remember, lila is a celebratory movement on God's part. God is fully satisfied, full independent, Atmaram. He doesn't need to do anything to accomplish something that he's empty in relation to. He's only whatever he does is out of fullness, not out of emptiness. He's so full that that fullness takes him to do, to engage in Lila. So that's Lila. Lila is a celebratory movement of God's part out of fullness. And the material creation is a byproduct of that fullness. So it must be full, as we'll see. Don't fool yourself about that fullness. <laughs> so we can see again, in other words, what this sutra is saying is the material creation is a byproduct of the maddened joy of Bhagavan. Wow. <laughs> it's the overflowing of God's Ananda. We call it Sristi Lila. We will talk about that more in, in other classes. And this idea is confirmed in Baladev Bidyabhushan's commentary to this sutra. Uh, let me read it for you. He says, As in ordinary life, men full of cheerfulness, when awakening from sound sleep, begin to dance about without any object, but from mere exuberance of spirit. Such is the case with the Lord. This lila, or the play of the Lord, is natural to him because he is full of self-bliss. So the material manifestation manifests, so to say, out of that. So it's important when we address matter, we connect what's the source of this, what's the cause of this. Then Baladev Bidyabhushan also, his commentary will share different quotes from Mandukya Upanishad, which confirms something similar. And then he concludes his commentary quoting the Narayan Samhita, which says something similar. It says, the creation of Hari and other activities of Hari does not depend on any motive. He does so out of sheer joy, as the drunkard dances through frenzy. He who is full of all bliss can have no motive whatsoever. So this is the idea. God is like drunk of ananda, of bliss. And he's dancing and celebrating life. And the byproduct of that dancing, that celebration, that divine drunk drunkness is the material creation. So in other words, if this world, if material energy, if you will, is an overflowing of God's divine frenzy, how can we see it as profane? as worthy of being left and rejected or something. So this is one main quote that I want to share with you to begin with. Similarly, but with different words, in Paramatma Sandara, going back there for a minute, Anuchita 86, Jiva Goswami mentions Paramatma creates, manifests the Sristi Lila for the sake of his devotees. That's a long topic, of course. And that's again, that's also out of bliss. That's out of the bliss that he ex Bhagavan experiences out of love of his devotees. That's his lila. Mm -hmm. So that's the backdrop of this world, bliss. Mm -hmm. And also we could say, okay, the world is for the devotees. But we could say that, okay, some people is not Krishna's devotee. But in one sense we could say everyone is Krishna's devotee in potential. And God, as we mentioned many times, is not seeing us for who we were in the past or who, what we are doing in the present, but, but for all that we can become in the future. God is seeing us for our potential. So if everyone is a devotee in potential, 
and God sees everyone according to their potential. He's seeing everyone as a devotee. We could we could make that point. And in that sense, we could say, okay, Krishna sees everyone as a devotee. In that sense, we are all included in the reason for Krishna's manifestation of this Rishti Lila, which is out of love for his devotees. There are different types of devotees. So in that way, in that way, we can also feel ourselves part of the whole plan that this world is about, that, that includes this world. Another statement comes from the Rasalasa Tantra, where Sri Sadashiva is mentioning Radha Krishna Param Brahma Prakriti Purushat Param Dhyayate Jogivirnityam Radha Krishna Mayam Jagat, which basically translates as contemplating Sri Sri Radha and Krishna as the absolute, uh, the mystical, the mystics perpetually behold the entire creation as suffused with Radha and Krishna. So with someone with a mystic, with a devotee, with a, someone with contemplative disposition in our particular Gaudiya tradition contemplates the world, Radha Krishna Mayam Jagat. They will see, oh, this is full of Radha and Krishna. The world is full of them. Samsara is full of Radha and Krishna. In that sense, we can make a play of words. And instead of describing Samsara as a very undesirable cycle of repeated birth and death, we could say Samsara. Full essence. Sam means full and sar means essence. So this world, we can find full essence here if we properly learn to, if we have the set of eyes for that. So this is the right vision to have. No, when we have this, when this proper vision is in place, again, everything we will realize everything can be used, everything can be engaged, nothing is to be wasted. That's our idea of Yukta Vairagya. Everything is in connection with Krishna. Everything is uh, to be ac accepted in service to him. Falgu Bhairagya is the opposite. Rejecting stuff without acknowledging their intrinsic connection with, with their source. Mm -hmm. So this is the ultimate recycling process, basically. Everything can be engaged in seva. Everything. <laughs> like Jiva Goswami's idea of Sangha Siddha Bhakti even if something is not inherently Bhakti every action basically can be connected with Bhakti and be made be, be made part of Bhakti everything is potential in the words of Prabhupada Bhakti Siddhanta everything is potential paraphernalia to be engaged in Bhakti including us, including this world. Exam a classic example in, in connection to matter is Archana and Srimurti, the Arti ceremony, for example. The deity itself is made of element, material elements, wood, bronze, whatever, but it's worshipped as none different from Bhagavan. So that confirms how matter can, through a particular process, of course, can be appreciated from material to divine, worshipable. So again, the deity is made of something apparently mundane, like stone, bronze, marble, whatever the case, wood. But the presence of the Supreme Lord will be perceived in a concentrated way and very specific way in that connection, in that direction. And if we understand that, of course, the idea eventually is to extend that vision and not only feel, okay, God is there, but and God is in the deity and God is in the temple, but gradually extend that vision and universalize our deity. And okay, the temple and the deity is are everywhere. Like Mahaprabhu himself exemplified when he saw Vrindavan, 
everywhere, not only in another dam like Jagannath Puri, but even in a not in a non-dam, so to say, as Jharikanda or Jamuna in any extension of water and so on. Of course, it's not easy to reach there. So for one to perceive this reality, of course, for example, in case of going back to the RT example, for one to see the deity matter as God, so to say, the deity as Bhagavan, in preparation for one performing the Arctic ceremony, a devotee will perform first Buddha Sudhi, or a purification of one's self-conception even. It will be a ritual in which through which one adopts the ego or the identity of the servant. Nahambi Pro, and different mantras in that connection. So that will allow us, I'm a servant, so I'm approaching everything, including matter, as a portal. Matter is not a wall that is preventing me from seeing God, but matter can, if properly approached, become a portal that will facilitate. So matter can facilitate. This is further confirming the Arctic plate, where you had the incense and all these elements, and the Panchamahabhutas are represented there, the main five ingredients of material reality, water, fire, air, ether, earth. Hmm? And all these five things, everything in this world is made of those five things. So what do you do with all these five things that symbolize the world in this plate? You, you offer it to Bhagavan. So you connect Shakti with Shakti Mam, realizing everything is a big Arctic plate, all this universe, potential paraphernalia. Hmm? And this is the very essence of Vaishnav etiquette, we could say. Bhakti Thakur said that once, I think. And to learn how to express proper regard for the sacredness of not only our process, but of everything that is part of that process. And everything can be part of that process. Therefore, everything <laughs> has, has the potential to be worshipped by us. Again, the spiritual sacredness of the material world. So let's continue with a few more quotes. We have, of course, the famous sutra, Sarvakaluidam Brahma, more from the Aveda perspective, non-different side of the Aveda equation. Everything is Brahman. Everything is the absolute. Everything means everything, <laughs> including matter. It's in one sense, non-different from the absolute. In another sense, of course, it's different, but it's also non-different. Or the famous the introduction, invocation of the Upanishad, uh, Upanishad, another Upanishad, we find this verse, Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachiti, and so on. Uh, basically, it's saying this, it's saying the absolute is per perfect and complete, and because he's completely perfect, all emanations from him, including this world, Purnamada Purnamidam, here and there, all of them are perfectly equipped as complete wholes. Holes, not holes with age, like there's a hole, they're whole, complete. Whatever is produced from the complete whole is also complete in itself. So this world is complete in connection to, the, to its source. Mm -hmm. Gita in the ninth chapter, verse four, just for you to know how we go this, have this idea, we are not here importing some foreign doctrine into our Siddhanta. In the fourth verse of ninth chapter, Krishna says in the Gita, the entire cosmos is pervaded by me in my unmanifest form, but nonetheless is pervaded by him. So the entire cosmos is pervaded by him. Try to stop this video <laughs> and think for a minute, which are the implications of that? How can you see the world as mundane if everything is pervaded by our sweet absolute? Hmm? 
what to speak, Krishna in the famous first verse of Chatu Shloki, eighth verse of the 10th chapter, Hamsarvasya Prabhupada, everything is coming from me. Everything is emanating from me. So if he's the source, I mean, and, our, and he's worshipable, whatever comes from him is worshipable as well. The Bhagavatam Prahlad Maharaj also prays in 7th Canto, 9th chapter, verse 48. Again, more from the Abed perspective, but I am emphasizing that because I think we need to bear that in mind for a while. He says, let me read. He's praying to Nisrim Hadev. You are the air, fire, earth, sky and water, the subtle elements, the vital force, the senses, the heart, pure consciousness and grace as well. O great one, you alone are all things, whether composed of the gunas or devoid of such gunas. There's nothing at all other than you, whether defined by thought or word. Hmm? Of course, we are not promoting Advaita Vedanta here, but just describing this non-dual foundation to reality and how everything is interconnected with Bhagavan. In fact, in, in this Narasimha Lila, in a few days we will be celebrating Narasimha Chaturthasi. And in fact, in this Lila, Narasimha Dev's appearance from pillar, as we know, from matter, <laughs> confirms how this world can reveal Bhagavan. Confirms it literally in this case. He came out from a pillar. His mother and father are a pillar. <laughs> Stamba. Well, of course, we don't call Nrsimha Stamba Nandana, the son of a pillar, but literally he appeared from a pillar. So this lady is confirming this fact we are mentioning. If we have the proper vision, such as Prahlad Maharaj said, had, he's everywhere. He's seeing Nrsimha Dev everywhere. Outside, inside. So Narasimha's appearance from the pillar is confirming, proving God is immanent in everything. If you have the proper bhakti vision, he will appear from the wall. He will appear from any atom, from a pillar. This is a very unique point that is validating matter in this world. Again, Nirshimhadev was gigantic in size, but he manifested from such a pillar, a smaller pillar by comparison, but he managed to manifest through an atom. So we have to consider, to think about these things <laughs> and to see how we, which are the implications of these teachings and how do we play them out. Another classical section in this connection is the 11th canto of the Bhagavatam where the Abhadut Brahman has these 24 gurus and most of those gurus come from nature. Different examples, different plants and animals and elements from the world, most of them, almost all of them, come from there. Sila Prabhupada, interestingly, let me share with you a comment he made on one section of this, uh, 11th canto, 9th chapter, verse 31. So he says the following, As recommended by the Brahmana Abhaduta, Abhadut, one can strengthen the teachings received from the one Sacharya and avoid transgressing his orders by observing ordinary things in nature, ordinary, quote-unquote. One should not mechanically receive the teachings of one's guru. The disciple should be thoughtful and with his own intelligence realize in practice what he has heard from his spiritual master by observing the world around him. So again, it's not that the world is there to distract us from our spiritual pursuit. If properly addressed, the world is complementing what we are hearing from Sri Guru. The world is, is acting as a guru. 
I mean, it's one of the 24 gurus, as, as I'm mentioning. <laughs> the earth itself was, I think, the first one that is mentioned in the Bhagavatam from these 24. Hmm? Which other example in the Bhagavatam, again, going back to the 10th canto, hmm? to the Damodar Lila, verse 13 and 14 from chapter 9 of the 10th canto, which shows how Krishna is everywhere. Hmm? <coughs> it says, thinking Krishna to be her own son, Yashoda bound him to a mortar with a rope like an ordinary child. He who has neither inside nor outside, neither front nor back, who exists in front of the cosmos and behind it, who is both within and without it, who indeed is himself the cosmos, and who, though unmanifest and beyond sense perception, had still appeared as a human being. So again, another verse that shows how Bhagavan can be thought in terms of this world, how the matter, how this world can be seen as a hosting place for God. Brahma Bimohan Lila includes many such verses as well. I won't go to them because that will make this class very, very long. Still, I have a few more things to share with your permission. But you can go to Brahma Bimohan Lila to find much more evidence. I'm compiling all that and putting as much as I can in in a chapter of my book that will include this section, almost a closing chapter. But one more verse from the Bhagavatam that I would like to share. This is from chapter 87 from 10th Canto, verse 26. That basically shows how the world is to be respected. It says, just as things made of gold are indeed not to be rejected, since their substance is actual gold, so this world is undoubtedly non-different from the Lord, who created it and then entered within it. And therefore, it's not to be rejected. That's the, the implication, of course. But it's not different from him. Of course, Sukadev Goswami in the Bhagavatam also speaks in the beginning about the Virat Rupa or the universal form, describing it as the gross form of Bhagavan. Interestingly, this cosmic form is described as the first avatar because it came into being before any other of the other Lila avatars of the Lord who come on earth. Hmm. And one last quote in this section, not from the Bhagavatam, but from the Vishnu Purana, 1-4, verses 40 and 41, just to make this case as clear, crystal clear as we can, hopefully. Hmm. So it says, this complete universe is conscious by nature, but the unawakened seen only its material form, are lost therein, drowned in delusion. But those who are endowed with knowledge and intuitive insight, being pure at heart, see distinctly this whole universe as conscious and as your own form. Hmm. So there, here we see all these statements. Hmm. Where is the idea of this word, Dukalayama Sashruta, miserable and temporary? Yes, for some people. <laughs> but for some others, we see what Gaudiya Siddhanta actually has to say. This world can be seen as not different from God, as a form of Him, conscious, a portal that reveals transcendence, coming out as a result of God's own joy, like the Vedanta Sutra is saying, and so on. Of course, again, I'm, I'm balancing. I'm not saying just... The world is non-different from Bhagavan in every sense. Apart from the above quotes, there are others who balance the equation of abed with bed, non-difference with different, God being different from the world, the world being one shakti of Bhagavan, like the fire, he being like the fire. And then we have 
smoke and, 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 and different sparks and heat and light. But at the same time, there is difference. Mm -hmm. So by emphasizing Krishna's presence everywhere, of course, we are not trying to do with his individual existence. He has kind of somehow merged into the world and he's not a person. No, no, we are, we are not saying that. We are saying that by emphasizing Krishna's presence everywhere, what we try to do is to extend his presence to the immediacy right here, right now. So he different and non-different. This is a chinta vida vida tattva. But I have emphasized in this last quote a little bit the abeda side, the non-difference between the world and Bhagavan. Because I think many Gaudiya Vaishnavas have emphasized the Veda side, the different side, too much. <laughs> to the point of seeing the world as bad, disconnected from God, disconnecting us from God. But as we have seen by the quotes, I hope that's not the case at all. Actually, the world is a product of God's inner ananda, inner joy. And therefore, it's pointing to that same inner joy if it's properly addressed, if it's properly conceived. So we are trying to, to share these ideas in these lectures to help us to properly conceive the realm of matter. So let's go to the next section. Now I've shared the main points, the main idea, the main stance of our Gaudiya school. But let's go to the next section where we'll speak about other traditions similarly see the world as sacred. It's not only about us, we Gaudiya say it, this stuff. We'll find this in every other mystical tradition. To a few references, just for you to see how this is a very pervading topic theme in different mystical schools. So, for example, contrary to Sankaracharya's idea that the world is mitya or false and illusory, as we already mentioned, for example, Ramanuja's proposal in Sri Vaishnavism is the world is real and the world is the body of God, something that we already kind of mentioned also. And that his idea is that God is supporting, controlling, and creating the world for his purpose, and therefore the world is subservient to him, to Bhagavan. This is Ramanuja's definition, and he gives the example of the body-soul relationship. Now he says the body is supported, controlled, and subservient to the soul. So similarly, the world, the body world, is supported, controlled, and subservient to the soul, God. Mm -hmm. So the world is seen for Ramanuja Chari and his followers, the world is seen as the body of the Supreme Lord. Mm -hmm. Because it, and therefore, for Sri Vaishnavas, the world is ultimately spiritual, because Bhagavan's body is spiritual and represents one of the many divine attributes of the Lord. So the world is not seen as bad, profane, worthy of being rejected and so on, but worshipable. Going outside of the Hindu landscape, for example, in Christian Christianity, Christian mysticism, for Christians, the mystics especially, each aspect of material creation is an instance, we could say, of, of, of an eternal self-emptying of God into creation. They see it as such. They, were, they invoke the term kenosis. Kenosis, a Greek term which speaks about self-emptying. For example, in the thinking of St. John of the Cross, this idea of kenosis is the concept of, again, self-emptying, in this case of one's own will, and becoming entirely receptive to God's will, divine will, so emptying ourselves. But in this particular case also, this world is an example. Uh, 
of God's self-emptying, God's activity, God's will. So God, God empties himself, and that, that takes the form of this world, so to say. So we go, as we'll say again, and this world is an, the, the, the byproduct of the, over, no, of the overflowing of God's joy. Christian mystic will say, God is emptying, this world is the product of God's self-emptying, kenosis. For example, in the Bible, we have quotes very clear about this. For example, it says, God is in all things and all things are in God. We will say something similar. You saw many of the quotes we shared. Richard Rohr, for example, speaks a lot about this in one very nice book he wrote called The Universal Christ, his last book. Let me share the quote with you. He says, <coughs> A mature Christian, Christian sees Christ in everything and everyone else. That is a definition that will never fail you, always demand more of you, and give you no reasons to fight, exclude, or reject anyone. Therefore, we must love God through, in, with, and even because of this world. So this pretty much reflects this idea. You know, famous other example of St. Francis of Assisi. Richard Rohr, of course, is Franciscan. So this is quite reflected. You know, he, he wrote some canticle, I don't know how to call it in English, but some canticle of the creature, creature, creatures. No, like basically expresses this theistic mood on how to approach every species in creation as part of the divine family, so to say. So in this way, we find many, many examples and cases in how other traditions, apart from our Gaudiya tradition, are conceiving, hmm? approaching, addressing this world as venerable, worshipable, sacred. Again, spiritual sacredness of the material world. So let's go to one last section, if you bear with me, called, there is no inherent profanity, everything is sacred. Mm -hmm. So as we have seen, matter is not just matter, or uh, does matter. Properly approached, matter includes and even reveals spiritual sacredness. Mm -hmm. That's why there is spiritual sacredness in the material world, mm -hmm. today's title. So that's our underlying epistemology as Gaudiya Vaishnavas. Hmm? Everything is sacred because everything has a connection to Bhagavan and everything has the potential to reveal Bhagavan to us if we have the proper stance. Therefore, in, if, in fact, we could say if matter is inhabited by God, as it is, he resides in every atom, therefore we could say that somehow even matter is eternal. Hmm. In one sense, matter is temporary, quote-unquote, <laughs> in the sense of changing forms and so on, but it never stops existing. It's existing without a beginning and without an end. It just changes forms. And it's always inhabited by Bhagavan. A brief disclaimer, just in case at this point, <laughs> that it's not that, or a brief clarification, no? it's not that because of transcendentalizing, so to say, the mundane or the material, we are mundanizing the transcendental. We are not doing that. Hopefully you are not taking this as such. Because strictly speaking, we could say there is nothing mundane. If you take mundane like a bad thing, profane. Mundane will be only in our eyes. Profanity will be always only in our 
way of addressing things. As they say, beauty is in the eye of the, of the beholder. So the same applies to mundanality. Profanity is in the eye of the beholder. So in other words, it's, it's the ego, the false ego, the one who tries to decide what's sacred, what's not sacred, and creates this split, this dichotomy. But when we go above the ego, everything is sacred. That's a contemplative mind, the non-dual thinking. Everything is seen in connection to the source. Everything is integrated into a bigger picture. So for a contemplative mind, there is no honest distinction between sacred and profaned. Not anymore. There's no more profanity because the only profanity was left was in our own sight. When that's purified, everything reveals the supreme. So in that sense, we, we should say, we shouldn't say there, there are sacred things and there are profane things. No. As one author once said, there are only sacred things and desecrated things. And we alone can desecrate them by our own blindness and our own lack of reverence. But if that desecration is not there, everything is sacred. If not, only speak about sacred and desecrated, not sacred and profane. So this is the stance we are trying to show here today. You know, everything is sacred. We can call this stance of finding God's presence in this world as, let's use the word, incarnational worldview, so to say. <laughs> Where God enters matter, inhabits every atom and so on. The profound recognition of the presence of the divine in literally everything, not only everyone, but everything, every atom. So throughout this type of worldview, if you want to call it incarnational, if not, you put the name you like, throughout this worldview, matter and spirit are not as separate anymore as we may like to think. Still, I'm not saying they are the same thing in every sense, but they are not as separate as we may like to think. In fact, we could even say that matter and spirit reveal and manifest each other. As we mentioned, matter can reveal, can act as a portal. If we open ourselves to this worldview, to this incarnational, so to say, principle, I mean, that will allow us many advantages as practitioners. And that will make God much closer, much accessible to us in the here and now. And not just like a guy above a cloud or who knows where far over there. Because again, remember, ordinary, in quotation mark, quote-unquote, so-called ordinary matter is the hiding place of the divine. We could call it like that. And therefore, in, in one way, it's the, it's the body of God, as it has been described in different traditions. Therefore, instead of conceiving God out there, better we start discovering here, discovering him here, right here. Not out there, not far away. In other words, we could say instead of God, God is, is, is hidden in the dirt and the mud instead of descending from the clouds, as we sometimes project that idea. He's far away, upstairs, over there, but not. We can find him in the immediacy of our daily experience. In the words of Thomas Merton, Try to find the extraordinary in the most ordinary moments of your daily life. We'll continue speaking, of course, more about this point next class. And of course, a brief mention in this connection that I would like to put so everything is put in context. Sometimes our blindness can take us to say matter is bad and matter is 
rejectable, but also another form of blindness can take us to to quick to to say too quickly and too smartly to invoke things like all things are sacred and God is everywhere and just render lip service to such high ideals. But that that to say that doesn't necessarily mean that one has really longed and made space for this awareness, not not really integrated such an amazing realization. So be careful just to, okay, let's do copy paste of what Maharaj is saying, uh, and just I'm I'm a mystical now. And we have to to actually enter into this, to implement all the things in our daily lives. And so while we are speaking about all these beautiful things here, we need to engage in our daily life, in our daily practice, engage with life, with reality, in such a way, with matter, that we gradually develop this vision. That's for all of us, including me first and least. Putting together these apparent opposites of matter and spirit, and integrating them into a higher synthesis. So anyhow, some words in connection to how there is no inherent profanity, but actually everything is sacred. So let's conclude. Let's go to the conclusion, the conclusion section, wrapping up today's presentation, sharing a few more thoughts before finishing. Uh, <clears throat> one second. So something that comes to mind <clears throat> as an added point here. For example, Mahaprabhu, going back to our Gaudiya tradition, how Sri Chaitanya Dip mentions every word when he was a Sanskrit teacher converted as a devotee in his lila. He will say every word is the name of God first, and then it serves to indicate whatever it indicates. Hmm? Similarly, Paramatma Sandarva in Anucheda 81 says, that Bhagavan alone is described by all words, whether secular or Vedic. So all words first point to him. So it's another way of saying everything is pointing to him. The Skanda Purana says the same. He's called Sarvanam. Sarvanam is he's called by all words. All words or names first and foremost point to him. In other words, this implies if all words point to him, he's everywhere. He's in everything. That's what we are talking today. He's in everything. That's the vision of the highest devotee, the Uttam Bhagavat. For the Uttam Bhagavat, which is the main symptom described in Shastra, everything is in God, God is in everything. Of course, that's a vision. It's not just saying that. Of course, by contrast, the view of the Kanishta, the neophyte, is, uh, God, is, is God exists in an ultra-localized way. He's in the altar. He's in the deity. He's nowhere else. He's only there. He's not in everyone and everything. Kanishta cannot accommodate such idea yet. But that becomes a vision for the Uttam. And of course, we are not, most of us, we are not Uttam Bhagavat. That's, so we can imitate an Uttam Bhagavat. But hopefully we, we are not Kanishta, so we are trying to grow from there. So as sadhakas, whatever we may be, uh, although we are not an Uttam Bhagavat, there should be some relating or some beginning point from which we somehow start to relate to the vision of the Uttam Bhagavat. Although I don't have that vision, I long for that vision. It's not that we will land in the Uttam world suddenly without any previous training in how to gradually get closer to that. So still, despite I say this, some people may insist, but Maharaj, to insist on this, that finding God in every atom and matter is the portal 
that's the vision of the Uttambhagavad. We are not that Uttambhagavad. Mm? Kind of int int intimating, suggesting that that may be an imitation of the Uttambhagavad to talk about these things. But no, actually one has to follow in the footsteps of the highest vision, right? That's the idea. Satobrite. Why? Because the vision of the highest devotees is the vision that most accurately corresponds with actual reality. I mentioned that, I think, in the past. I will repeat it again. The vision of the highest devotees, in this case the Uttambhagavad, is the vision that most accurately corresponds with how actual reality looks like. So we want to live reality. We want to be aligned with reality, with that vision that comes from the Uttambhagavad. So even if we are not an Uttambhagavad and we are not on that level of vision yet, we know that the, the vision of that people, that's how reality should be looked upon. So we want to be aligned with that. So according to them, all matter reveals the Supreme. God is, is present there. So in other words, my point is we must acknowledge the vision of the Uttambhagavad that is what ultimately reality looks like. And we must proceed from wherever we are in our journey in the inner pursuit of that vision. That's their vision, and I'm trying to make that vision mine gradually. This is what it's actually meant again by following the footsteps. What do you think? It's just a physical thing of walking behind a person? No. Following the footsteps of the highest devotees is, is to do that, to long cherish the vision they had, the realization they have, that for us is a theory yet. It's nonetheless inspiring. And it's a theory that orients, orients our practice and acts. That's following the footsteps. And that's not imitation. Mm -hmm. And that's basically what being a sadhaka is all about. Being a sadhaka practitioner means to appreciate, to acknowledge in theory, we have to begin somewhere, the realized vision of the Siddha, of the perfected being. That's what it means to be a sadhaka. To appreciate in theory the reality of Bhava Bhakti and Prema Bhakti. I'm not there, but I learn about that in theory. I become moved by that, inspired by that, and I engage in practice so that theory becomes an accomplished reality at some point for me. And not only to appreciate and acknowledge merely, but again, appreciate it to such a point that I cannot help but to dedicate my whole life to live in the hope of attaining that reality, that realization. And all that begins in the here and now. I mean, I won't suddenly again appear there, have to start where I am now, here. There's no other way of becoming a Sita. This is sadhana bhakti. This is the pilgrim's journey, so to say. So therefore, just to conclude what we have pointed today, in today's class at least, and in the next two as well, is about what we are suggesting is about observing, touching, loving the physical, the material, we could call the inspired universe or the inspirited universe, in whatever condition it may be in, not just the fancy landscape only. And, and starting there, relating to matter in such a way as the necessary starting place for any healthy spirituality and any true development. Start from where you are. Learn to relate in a healthy way with what you have in your immediacy. 
if we have the heart in the right place, again, our connection with this world will never pro profane. It's all about having the heart in the right place. If the heart is not in the right place, however, of course, even, even rejecting this world, I have to leave this samsara and so on, that will be another form of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Even transcendence will be profane for us if we don't have the heart in the right place. But if we have the heart in the right place, the world will be sacred. As I like to put it, when once came this idea, when there is real love, everything becomes justified. When there's no such love, everything becomes an excuse. So it's all about having the heart in the right place and everything becomes justified. Everything finds its meaning, its purpose. When love and the heart is not in the right place, everything, including Gaudi Vaishnavism, has the potential to end up being an excuse for us. So we don't want that. Anyhow, some words, some final thoughts we want to share in this conclusion section. I hope these ideas are churning, thought-provoking, and inviting you to go deeper into your own practice on a daily life. So thank you so much again. We will conclude here. I appreciate your time, your trust, your investing of your attention. And a brief homework, just in case, will be to meditate. Let's meditate on our own relationship with this world. How do I conceive matter? How do I relate to the world? And let's reflect of what I can do to increase my perception of the spiritual sacredness present in the material world. So next uh, Tuesday, we will continue with the somehow second part of this series. And the title will be Our Gaudiya Heaven is Here on Earth. So somehow we will be, of course, connected with today's point. But more specifically in the context of the idea of Golok Vrindavan, how Golok Vrindavan comes to earth in the form of Gokul, in the Braja Lila, in the Bhoma Lila on earth, and how the Lila plays out on earth for eternity, and therefore the spiritual world remains on earth for eternity, and connecting a few of these thoughts along the lines of the spiritual sacredness of the material world. So thank you so much and see you next time. Tuesday, Sri Mangol Hari Ki Jai, Sri Gaudiya Sampradaya Ki Jai, Sri Hari Nam Sankirtan Ki Jai, Gaur Bhakta Vrind Ki Jai, Gaur Pramananda Hari Hari Bo, Vancha Kalpataru Vishra Kripa Sandhu Vyai Vacha, Patitanam Pavane Fiyo Vaishnava Vyanamonu, Ananta Koti Vaishnava Vrind Ki Jai, Gaur Gaur Hari Bo.